You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Um, our guest this week is someone who I worked with for many years, um, someone who was uh, just an incredible colleague, great to work for, as I did, and uh, about as preeminent in NFL writing circles as it gets. Peter King has covered pro football for 39 years. He'll be coming up on covering his uh, 40th year, as he uh, let me know in this podcast. He writes a popular Monday morning NFL column each week exclusively for NBCSports.com, essentially must-reading for NFL fans. And you see him on Football Night in America and uh, a number of other mediums when it comes to the NFL. We get into uh, a ton of topics from the schedule release to uh, Amazon's foray into Black Friday games. Flex scheduling, and uh, both Peter and I obviously think for Amazon to get it would be an absolute disgrace uh, for the NFL regarding its players. We'll see what happens. Peter gets into um, where he has uh, teams heading into the season. He's obviously very high in the Eagles, as most are, but you'll hear him uh, talk about the Lions, who are kind of his on-the-come team. Um, We we get into uh, Tom Brady. A little bit accepting the Fox job. Peter believes he will be in the Fox booth come September of 2024. And then we uh, we talk a little bit about uh, our uh, our time at Sports Illustrated. Uh, Peter starting MMQB, which was just an incredible uh, it was an incredible time at Sports Illustrated where he was able to just create this new product and it launched so many super talented people. Or maybe not launched. Uh, all of them. Some were established, but uh, um, I was a very, very tiny, minor part of that, and it was just—it was just awesome to just like be able to tell people like I was part of it. Like you know, I'd write a media com whatever once a week or once every other week. Uh, it was just a cool, a cool group to be part of. So Peter King for about uh, forty minutes or so coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top. Uh, Peter King really doesn't need an introduction for NFL fans. He's covered pro football for 36 years, including 29 years at Sports Illustrated, where uh, it was an absolute pleasure to be his colleague. Not, in addition to that, um, I was on his staff at uh, when he started the MMQB, which was a, a very, very cool thing for me to be part of. Today, Peter writes a very popular Monday morning NFL column each week exclusively on NBCSports.com. You can hear him on PFT Live with Mike Florio, see him on Football Night in America, um, continuing to be seen on many different platforms when it comes to the NFL. And I'm pleased to be joined 
by Peter King. Peter, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Richard, great to be on with you. I really appreciate it. I listen to your pod. Look at that. It's really a lot of fun. You have great guests, and I appreciate the chance to be on it. One slight correction. I am, uh, this is my, I just finished my 39th year covering the NFL. First year was 1984 in Cincinnati. So I'm actually entering this football season will be my 40th covering the NFL in some form or other. Wow. I'm going to fire the fact checker, which is me. Um, <laughs> and so that's amazing. Congrats on that. I remember like midway through my time at SI, there was an editor there. You probably remember Mike Bevins. Mike really tried to encourage me to go write the baseball column. I think they were uh, promoting Verducci or doing something with Verducci and they needed somebody to write the baseball column and Bevins really wanted me to do it. The only problem was by that point, you know, I would have been taking a huge pay cut because I would have lost television opportunities. And although one of the things I'm not saying I regret, but one of the things that I kind of wish I did at some point in my life was to cover baseball. Um, when I was a kid growing up in Connecticut, it was my first love. You know, my father idolized Ted Williams. I idolized Carl Yastrzemski. Uh, and so it would have really been fun, but it just never worked out the way I the way I sort of thought it might one day. You know, it's interesting, like you bring this up and that um, one of the things I always admired about you is that when we were working together at Sports Illustrated, you f you a couple times during your run asked to cover some other events and you know listen let's be honest you had a lot of leverage at one point you were far and away the the most important content person at sports illustrated i don't even think that's uh can be argued but you covered the world cup uh peter i remember i think you probably covered it with our um dearly b b you know departed friend grant wall i i think you covered I feel like I want to say you you can remind me. Did you you covered some other kind of signature event? Here's what here's what was great. Here's one of the reasons why I am will always owe so much to Sports Illustrated. In 1996, SI did a daily magazine at the Olympics in Atlanta and I covered uh, a wide variety of things. I was the US softball team's beat person at, at, at that Olympic Games, living in Atlanta, but commuting to Columbus, Georgia, which was way out there. I covered a lot of soccer there. I remember I covered a game in Birmingham, I think at Legion Field. Uh, I covered a game in Athens at Georgia's football stadium. Uh, and then you're absolutely right, in 2010, I covered the World Cup in South Africa, and Grant was uh, Grant was my uh, tutor, and he taught me everything. Uh, and then that first game, we we rode together to a little town in South Africa called Rustenburg, and the U.S. played England. U.S. tied England on a cheap, fluky goal led in by the British goalie, the English goalie. And um, anyway. Uh, that was a tremendous experience, you know, to go cover. I was actually in the U.S. team's hotel and Bob Bradley at the time, I think it was, wasn't Bob Bradley the coach? I think he was the coach. Yeah, 
and very tight with Grant because he was the Princeton coach when Grant was in school. Yeah, yeah, and Bob Bradley wanted to hear all my stories about Parcells. So it really was that was a great opportunity. And I had some and look, there were four different springs that I volunteered to go do stories in spring training, uh, you know, and, and cover some baseball. So I got my baseball fix in a little bit also. So, yeah, I I went a little bit far afield at, at SI and I always appreciated the chance to do it. Yeah. And I will say this about our old employer. Um, I could never, re- I covered seven Olympics for the, for Sports Illustrated. Wow. I can never wow. repay. Uh, I mean, Sandy, then Bailey, Sandy Rosenbush, I got on her Olympic team and she was an incredible person to me. Like you just, and I know you agree yeah. with me on this, Peter, like to, to have a job where someone else pays for you to travel the world is a dream. Yeah. And uh, it is, it's and, awesome. Yeah. And both of us got, uh, we're really fortunate. When I was a, when I was a kid, so I grew up in Northern Connecticut. Our biggest vacation as a family is three or four times we went to Cape Cod for a week. So we never really went anywhere. As a matter of fact, before I got in the car to drive to Ohio University for my freshman year, you know, in those days you didn't visit colleges. You know, you just—I mean, some people did, but but I didn't. And the first time that I was ever west of Philadelphia was in the car going west on the Pennsylvania Turnpike, going to school in Athens, Ohio. My mother and father dropped me off. We had breakfast the next day. They got back in the car and there I was, you know, 750 miles from home. And I said, whoa, this is this is different. But I mean, I always thought it would be cool to travel. And that was one of the reasons that I thought it would be fun to be a journalist too, that, you know, to live in a different part of the country and maybe to travel around. I thought I was kind of motivated by that. Yeah. Um, and we'll turn to football. I, 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 you know, it sort of had me thinking um, that one of my fondest memories ever of working at Sports Illustrated um, was in 2004 and Grant Wall, I traveled with Grant to uh, a party that Sports Illustrated threw. It was the last party of the Olympics and they had all the, American gold winners there. And this was at a time where Sports Illustrated was just making money hand over foot. It was like an eight working yeah. working at an ATM. And uh and I just remember Grant and I, we were on the uh uh the foot of the Aegean Sea. There's this like spread wow. that's like something out of like uh, you know, the Charles and Charles coronation. And we were just laughing our asses off because like we cannot, you know, just a bunch of knucklehead sports writers. And we could not believe that we're in this luxury place being paid to basically drink, uh, and eat this food. It was great. It was, uh, it was, I still can sort of see both. And we were both young and, and sort of the beginnings of our career was pretty cool. All right, let's move on to the NFL. Peter's no great segue. Uh, but we, both of us obviously miss Grant very much. Um, Schedule release is, I'm taping this with you on Wednesday. The schedule release will come out on Thursday. Very writ large, big picture. Like, what's interesting to you about the schedule release? Because you've written about this many times, and I think you, more than maybe anyone else, has educated me on just how this thing comes together. Well, I find it to be very interesting that over time, I first came up with this idea in 2014, Because remember, Richard, at the MMQB, we were looking to be able to do different things uh, that hadn't been done before. And 
And one thing I did, the first one of the first things I did uh, was I put a camera in Jason Garrett's team meeting as he welcomed the Dallas Cowboys to training camp. And that was the first thing that we ever did at the MMQB. Nobody had ever done that before. That first year, I spent a week with Gene Steratore's officiating crew, went everywhere with five guys on the crew. Um, you know, Dino Paganelli, the back judge, was a high school social studies teacher in Grand Rapids, Michigan, sat in his class for the day and saw him. He was a single dad, saw him uh, make dinner for his kids, do homework with his kids. It, you know, those are the kind of things that, you know, we really wanted to do. And I remember that second year, I desperately wanted to do a story on uh, what it was like to put the schedule together. So I got Howard Katz, uh, Mike North of the scheduling team, Ani Bose. Uh, these guys are have been doing the schedule forever. And I convinced the people at the NFL, take let me see behind the curtain. Nobody knows how hard this is. And so that first year that I did it, the first year, basically, I went in there late in the afternoon, the day the schedule was being released into the Val Pinchbeck scheduling room, which was the size of a medium sized conference room. It wasn't huge. And the thing I first remember is the smell. And you say, well, what do you mean the smell? The smell of people who had been in this room for 14 hours a day for weeks and it was kind of an earthy smell. It wasn't quite B.O., but it was just, you know, there was too much garbage in the garbage cans. It was just very lived in. They didn't clean it up for me, which I was so happy about. And over the years, when I've done this schedule story, these schedule stories, it's like one year, one year, what was so interesting about the schedule story is the Philadelphia Eagles, the Pope was going to come to Philadelphia and the Eagles couldn't be home on a specific Sunday. And the NFL originally had them home on that Sunday. So the Archbishop of Philadelphia wrote a letter to Roger Goodell, misspelled his name, called him Commissioner Goddell and uh, pleaded to please don't have the Eagles home in week three. And those were the kind of things that the schedule team every single year has to work with. And so over the years, it's just been kind of fun. And this year, Richard, it is significantly tougher for two reasons. Number one, there is no more exclusivity for Fox for forever. You know, the NFC road team, that would always be a Fox game. The CBS road team would always be a CBS or the uh, AFC road team would always be a CBS game. And so over the years, you it got to be very predictable. But this year, this is the first year that the NFL basically said those days are gone forever. We are not going to be restricted by that anymore. So, of course, party time at Fox in Los Angeles, because now 
uh, Fox, you'll see by the schedule, I'm sure they're going to leech off a bunch of the superstar quarterbacks in the AFC. They're going to get, I'm sure they might get one or two more games of like Lamar Jackson, uh, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert. They're going to get more of those games than they normally would have gotten. But but anyway, so I've just enjoyed over the years kind of getting to know how the sausage is made because, man, those 272 games, especially because this group, the scheduling team works, honestly, for four months every day. Yeah, I was talking to somebody in the league, and they, this was last Saturday, and the schedule team had a two to three hour Zoom on Saturday afternoon about where they were with the schedule. And the one thing I'll tell you, Richard, about this year, and obviously we don't know everything about it, but the interesting thing this year is that a lot of the tent pole games are usually pretty much solidified like a week out. I can tell you on Saturday, there was not one tent pole game that was set in stone. They they went to see Roger Goodell on Monday afternoon, and there were those on the scheduling team who were dubious that this schedule was going to get done in time for this week, for this Thursday. But I, I'm pretty sure Goodell said, I, I, I don't want to hear that. The schedule, it, you know, you can go over these things 100,000 times, but at some point you got to pick one. So we will have a schedule made. And obviously with the games that have leaked out to this point, uh, there is a, a made schedule and we'll, we'll see it Thursday night. The uh, and to mention sort of to follow what Peter said in the same vein, um, CBS now will get a, probably an extra Cowboy game or two, so um, it'll benefit them on that side. But but out Fox really comes out better because of uh, the quarterbacks, as Peter mentioned. Um, what we do know, Peter, as I tape this with you now, is the NFL's first Black Friday game, which will yeah. be the Jets and Dolphins. Um, you know, from my world, there's nothing that you can compare this to historically because you can't there's the NFL doesn't have a history of 3 p.m. Friday uh, kickoffs. But I again, this would just be my sort of instinct. I think this thing has a chance to really pop. And particularly now with Aaron Rodgers uh, in that game, I just how do you know you've you know, you've covered everything in the NFL, but you've never covered a Black Friday game. How do I, I think this is going to really be a, a staple for the NFL? How do you see it? Well, I think so. I mean, the NFL, Richard, as you know, has, uh, you know, when I started covering the league in 1984, Joe Brown, the longtime uh, PR guy for the league, who now is like uh, in the Mount Rushmore of sports PR people of all time. And Joe Brown always thought it was ridiculous that the NFL did not do anything in the offseason to market itself. And so he and several others in the league, but I think it was mostly a Joe Brown production, started saying, we want some tentpole events in our offseason, the way baseball does with the hot stove league. So they started to make the draft a big deal. Over time, they chipped away, chipped away, chipped away to the arch conservatives who ran the scouting combine. And by about 2003 or four, it had become an event. I still remember in 2000 covering the combine in Indianapolis with about 
I don't know, 18 to 20 reporters total and watching Plexico Burris just walk down the street, go up, introduce himself, say, hey, I want to write about you. Can we meet? And we met for lunch for an hour and a half. And so they wanted events like that to become sort of tentpole events. So the combine, free agency, the draft, and now even in season, uh, you're going to see them do things like this Amazon Prime game uh, on Black Friday, which, you know, Richard, I, I think this has a chance to be really, really interesting because, you know, the reports are that it may not just only be on Amazon Prime. It may be for wider distribution where you'd still have to stream it, but you wouldn't necessarily have to be an Amazon Prime customer to get it. And I think that would really be helpful to the NFL because, as you know, what I found really weird about Roger Goodell trying to get the, uh, you know, trying to be able to make flex scheduling for a Thursday night game, which, Richard, it's categorically insane. It's it's idiocy, honestly. John Mara's right. Uh, it's, it's a terrible, terrible idea. And what is really weird, you would know this. I think ESPN, it took them till their 15th year doing Monday night football, something like that, to get flex scheduling. Amazon has one frustrating year streaming with ratings, which everybody knew their ratings were going to be clunky. And, you know, Roger Goodell is going to the mat to fight for them to get, uh, you know, to get flex scheduling for a short period late in the season. It's absurd, but it just goes to show you where the NFL's heart is right now. Their heart is to try to make streaming look better and better every year to give them a little bit better schedule. And Richard, I wrote this this week, which I think was, I think surprised quite a few people, uh, judging by the reaction I got from my email. But I think you're going to see some teams in the league this year, you know, pick three or four, maybe Arizona, maybe Tampa, who I, I don't even know who, but I think you're going to see some teams not have a primetime game. And it, it has been the case over the years in the NFL that every team will have at least one primetime game. But, and again, I could look dumb for saying this, but the, the NFL doesn't have to now. It's, there is no even, uh, you know, unofficial requirement or even strong recommendation that every team get on prime time. And that's because they're trying to say to Amazon, look, we passed a rule so that teams can play two short week Thursday games now. And we did this for you so that maybe you could have a couple of Cowboys or maybe a couple of Kansas cities or whoever it is. But I think the NFL is totally bending over backwards to try to make the streaming numbers a lot better. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, I think it's a terrible idea. My sense is it'll probably eventually pass though. Just knowing the history of that league. Um, one of the things that, um, 
<laughs> I just enjoyed seeing you had your um, before you um, Peter's going on vacation for a, a couple weeks. And so more than a couple weeks. And so right before he did, he, he listed um, how he sees the 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 teams right now, like ranked heading into the year. The Eagles were a prohibitive favorite. You had the Lions, uh, Peter, at number six, which I think uh, would be interesting to to a lot of people. But man, that got a lot of attention. And um, I don't know, maybe you're used to it now. But like, as you're writing this stuff, like, are you aware that uh, um, someone's going to really dissect to you know who you have ranked at twenty first versus let's say like seventeenth or or third? You know, I remember uh, in twenty twenty. Tampa Bay was coming off a seven and nine season. They signed Tom Brady. Brady looked like an old man by the end of 2019 in New England. Had a fairly embarrassing close to his career, losing a wild card game to Tennessee at home, throwing a pick six on his last pass and all that. And I just said that uh, I pick, I put Tampa Bay seventh. Now, a lot of people fricasseed me this year for putting Detroit sixth, but go back and read the reaction to me putting Tampa Bay seven. Uh, and Richard, I'm, I must say, this is the year they ended up winning the Super Bowl. And by the way, I picked them to get to the Super Bowl that that fall. But be that as it may, the easiest thing to do on an exercise like this is to say, well, let's look at how the standings finished last year. And then let's pick it right in that order. Why would you do that? What good does that do? It never turns out like that, ever. So I always look for teams that are trending in the right direction. And this year, probably my three teams were Detroit uh, at six, Seattle at 12. Uh, and you'd probably say the Giants at 11. Um and then, you know, I had some decent teams down below, but I think collectively the west side of the Gulf Coast of Florida went went wild when I put Tampa 31. And I just think Tampa's offense is going to be either one of the worst or the worst in the league. Not They're not going to be as bad as Arizona, but they're going to be a bad offense. And uh, I just don't think they'll be very good. They got a lot of their players back on defense, but I don't know. I think they're trying to scotch tape something together. And they got guys who want out. Uh, so, I, you know, who knows? But I always try to pick things a little bit different than, you know, than the status quo would say. Although I think, and I think you're accurate about this. Um, again, they have to play, you know, you don't, you, you don't know what's going to happen with injuries. NFL seasons can be very, very surprising. That said, you did make it a point in your column to say that like the Eagles are a number one and then there's a yeah. drop and then we have number two, three, four, five, et cetera. Correct. In my opinion, the reason I like Philadelphia a lot is that other than, you know, getting pillaged a bit at linebacker, which um, in their defensive scheme, linebacker is definitely the third most important slot, you know, behind the, the secondary and the defensive line. Uh, I, I think they're as good or better at every position group than they were a year ago. And 
my feeling about that is that Howie Roseman has figured out he knows when you take a chance in a draft, when you draft chalk and all that stuff. I mean, he obviously has taken a big chance on Jalen Carter, because if you look at the four teams in front of him in the draft, Seattle five, Detroit six, they ended up trading it. But Seattle five, Detroit six, Vegas seven, Atlanta eight. They all were very interested in Jalen Carter. And the first three have major needs at defensive tackle, and they all passed them by. That's why in my column after the draft, uh, I just expressed this surprise that, you know, and look, I think Howie Roseman has done a phenomenal job. But how in the world can you praise Howie Roseman for picking Jalen Carter when two weeks ago you were saying everybody in the media is saying Jalen Carter could turn into an absolute disaster? <laughs> you know, we don't we just don't know yet. So, look, I don't know what's going to happen. I think Jalen Hurts is on Patrick Mahomes level right now. If I had to pick three quarterbacks, it, it, it'd be Mahomes Hurts and Burrow in some order right now. And I, I just think they've got a lot going for themselves. And look, Kansas City's really good too. Um, they got to replace a left tackle. They got to replace their leading wide receiver. They got to replace speed in McCole Hardman a year after losing Tyreek Hill. So I, I don't, I, I like Kansas City a lot. But I just I think they've got some work to do. They always seem to get it done, but I think they got some work to do. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. A couple more here, and we'll do some media-related stuff. Um, you covered Tom Brady for a long time, uh, you know, the, 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 including the entire duration of his NFL career. You saw that um, he accepted the Fox job with uh, the caveat that he wasn't going to enter the booth this year and would you use this year as, um, in my words, here, some sort of a training ground for that. That's still a long way out. In terms of Tom Brady actually ever officially heading to the booth, um, you know, my sense is just hearing everything Brady say. I still think he's going to take the job. I would bet big that he will not stay in that job for any kind of period of time. But you have, you know, him. You have far more insight than me. And I wonder again, just um, from your uh, from your viewpoint right now. What do you make of Brady accepting this Fox analyst job? And, um, I mean, do you expect him to, to actually be in the booth come September 2024? I have zero inside information on it. 
Richard. So all I'm telling you is what my guess is. And my guess is, yes, he will take the job. And yes, he'll do it. Brady has a history of people saying things about him and him going and disproving those things. 199th pick in the draft. Um, you know, he can't do this. So obviously he went and did it and he did it better than anybody ever has. So I think there's some of that in him. I think you won't find a lot of reporting about what exactly he's doing to try to um, get in shape and get ready to do this job. But I think he's going to try to do it because it's another skill to be mastered. And I think that's something that he needs. He's one of those guys who can't just fade off uh, into retirement and play golf five days a week. I, I think he needs a goal to set. And if that goal, I believe it probably is, if that goal is doing television, it's to be really, really good at doing television and using this year to get a lot of reps to do it. That's just my gut feeling. Peter, um, I saw that uh, in reading your column, um, the attorney generals of California and New York launched a joint investigation into allegations of employment discrimination and a hostile work environment at the NFL. Um, what do you, where's the concern level for the NFL on this, in your opinion? I think there's some legitimate concern because, look, there are whatever, a thousand, eleven hundred female employees in the NFL. I think that's the number. It's somewhere around there. Um, you'd be naive to think that in a testosterone environment, that things aren't said and done and and sideways comments made. And clearly, the New York Times basically has done a lot of the footwork uh, for uh, the attorneys general of California and New York. And I believe that that will be the basis that they use. And, you know, they quoted the Times a year ago in their expose about this. They quoted a former NFL media vice president uh, who had been with the league for 19 years and quoted some very uh, sort of damaging uh, statements by her about her experience in the NFL, said it was a boys club, uh, boys club culture. And look, the time for that to end is now. And, you know, Roger Goodell can make all the statements he wants but he can't be everywhere throughout this mega league and this mega business, this 20 or $21 billion business, whatever it's up to right now. So I think it's great. I think it's fantastic that there was uh, a, a heavy microscope on Daniel Snyder. I think it's one of the things that at least is in the process of forcing him out as owner. Uh, I don't know exactly. I hear that, that he's dug his heels in on a few things. So I don't know if that's going to be 
exactly very smooth for the NFL to to get done later this month when the owners convene in Minneapolis to to really try to push that process along. But I think it's great that they're looking at this. Um, and I hope that this is not just an investigation where a couple of people are brought before Congress, Roger Goodell and whoever else, so and get bashed over the head. Let's have some real investigation uh, of this story and of these people making these charges. And uh, I hope they do it. And, and look, I don't I'm not saying that. Yeah, I hope X number of people get sued, fired, whatever. I don't mean that. I mean that we're in the time in our society right now and in our culture right now where, you know, the stuff that was acceptable 20 years ago, it's it's dinosaur stuff now. It can't continue to happen. And so there can't, there has to be uh, an understanding that there's going to be a Me Too movement, a Me Too moment in the NFL. It needs to happen now. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Here's the last one I want to get to with you. Um, you. You know, the NFL in some ways has really been able to have its cake and eat it too when it comes to gambling. They've been able to um, get a lot of money from uh, their rights hold, not their rights hold the partners, but their 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 partnerships with um, sports gambling entities, yet they have made it with their media partners to not um, really go very big, Peter, in terms of gambling nomenclature on air, uh, pregame shows doing a ton of gambling. So they've been able to collect the money for it, but not necessarily the you know the downsides for those who don't want it in their face. In my opinion, at a certain point, like something has to break. They either, you know, stop the charade and sort of talk about gambling during their games, or they go the other way and they sort of say, listen, this is becoming too much of an issue. We've already had some players involved in this. We're not going to do it. I don't see them avoiding. I see them going the former because I think there's too much money for them to, to not take. But, but how do you see this? Cause at least at this point, you know, they've been able to navigate it where um, they're getting the financial rewards for it. But, you know, outside of the suspensions with the lines and stuff, not really that much negative. How do you see this? Seven years ago, Roger Goodell said we remain very much opposed to gambling on sports. Six years ago, Roger Goodell said we are still opposed to any form of legalized gambling. And now they can't rake in the money fast enough from legalized gambling. Richard, I think we're going to wake up in five, six, seven years, and there is going to be uh, a um, a plague of people whose lives have been affected slash ruined by legalized gambling. 
and I'm not trying to be a prude here. I realize that you can't stand up against uh, something that is legally available in the United States. I totally get it. But the NFL has pivoted incredibly quickly and now is a part of basically mainstream legalized gambling. And I just think it's going to, it's going to make the NFL a lot of money. And not necessarily that this is the NFL's fault per se, but it's going to ruin a lot of lives. It's going to ruin a lot more lives than it enriches uh, people's lives. I'll just say that. I think it's sad that uh, it has come to this. Um, and I realize I'm an old man. I'm not a gambler, as you can tell. But not to say I, you know, wouldn't look, I I was in Vegas a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I, I did not gamble. But for the NFL draft, uh, I, I was in the uh, the Raiders uh, draft room. But I'm I'm just amazed you know, the airplane that I was out went out on uh, from Chicago to Vegas. You could just tell that. Every adult person on that plane, I felt I, I just had had the look of I can't wait to get to Vegas uh, so I can hit the slots or I can hit whatever. And um, I don't know. I I don't want to be a Pollyanna about this. I just think it's going to have reverberations that are going to be bad for our society. Peter King. You can find his work on NBCSports.com with his uh, incredibly well done and executed and essentially must-reading Monday Morning NFL column as he uh, corrected me. He's heading into his 40th year of covering pro football, which is is just amazing. Peter, listen, I know uh, you're about to go on however many weeks it is, 10, 12 weeks, of not writing, so you get a little bit of a recharge. And uh, I thank you very much for taking the time today uh, to do this. You were, uh, as I said many times to you, and I've certainly written this in print, uh, you were a great person to work for. Uh, being part of the MMQB at the beginning was such an exciting thing where you were allowing people to do different things and, and to try different things. The amount of talent that came out of there, I mean, you know, the Jenny Rentises and of the world and stuff, it's just amazing to see how – how about how about how about Clemco now with the Washington Post? Not even covering how about football. Emily, Emily Kaplan on television. You, <laughs> I know you 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 uh, you helped birth an NHL television reporter. You never probably thought that. <laughs> I know that's incredible. I know, but yeah, yeah. it was it was uh, Jenny. Yeah, yeah. The, if you look at the staff in the MQB uh, way back uh, uh, at the start, it uh, it's very cool to see all those people uh, have had. Yeah. Hey, by the way, so, Richard, yeah. including now one of your peers. Kalen Kaler at the Athletic, a great writer. Project uh, Prospect X, one of my favorite things. Uh, yeah. when it comes to the draft, yeah, she's uh, she's a she's a big talent, and uh, and it's great to see her having success at the Athletic. You know, it's interesting, Peter. You know, one of the things um, I always thought as we sort of leave here, I'll, I'll let you sort of finish with a thought. Is one of the things I admire about you and um, Bill Simmons. By the way, people who particularly don't even love me, Colin Coward, etc. If you can use your fame to uh, create something for others, create livelihoods for others, create jobs for others, 
that is so impressive to me in the sports media space. And it wasn't always like that. I mean, Rick Riley once upon a time was the most famous uh, sports writer in America. No disrespect to Riley, who I get along with and really liked, but you know, he didn't. He used his fame for him, which he certainly was allowed to. But I, I always admired Peter that you you took what. Um, you're standing at SI and quite frankly, you're leveraged at SI and, and created jobs for others. And that to me is an, a phenomenal legacy to have. Hey, you know, Richard, thank you for that. But it really, I owe the people at Sports Illustrated. I, you know, this is a weird story. I don't know if I've ever told you, but John Walsh um, in the fall of 2012, my contract was due to expire early in 2013 at SI and John Walsh met with me in Washington and he came up with this idea. I want to give you your own NFL website. I never thought of this. I never, never envisioned it. And when I went to SI, I basically told the powers that be, including Paul Fichtenbaum, now the athletic that I've got an opportunity uh, and I'm totally devoted to SI, but this opportunity is ridiculously good at ESPN to have my own staff and, and all that. And I, I think I'd really enjoy doing it. So they said, well, we'll do it. And so it wasn't quite as cushy as it would have been at ESPN. And there wasn't the kind of staff commitment that, that there was at ESPN, but one thing I will always, always appreciate about SI as it relates to me is that, you know, they thought that this had an opportunity to be a really cool growth opportunity, um, you know, for uh, media covering the NFL. And for a while it was. I think what ends up happening, and I went out on 19 sales calls one year. And I think what ended up happening, I remember being at Nike in Beaverton, Oregon, maybe 2015 or 16. And I remember being out there and being in a meeting and somebody said, basically, we've got so much of our stuff tied up with ESPN, you know, as far as print slash website, all that stuff, which and look, I, I totally get that. I understand that. I said, could we please have one crumb of the cookie? No, we can't. But anyway, SI was always really, really good in allowing me to say, hey, let's do this. And basically uh, allowing me to bring in some young talent. You're right. Like Jenny Varentis from, you know, Jenny Varentis was the number three football writer at the Star Ledger in Newark. And I used to read her and I used to say, this girl really, woman, excuse me, really has great depth when she writes. I really enjoyed it. Clemco, the previous year at a playoff game in Denver, uh, Ray Lewis and Ray Rice in the Ravens locker room uh, and a whole bunch of players like ganged up on Clemco. They were ticked off at him. Uh, for something related to Ray Lewis. And Klemko just stood there. He had all these guys screaming at him in the locker room, and he just stood there. And afterwards, Klemko just shrugged his shoulders and said to me, I barely knew him. And he said, hey, part of the job. And I'm, I'm serious. That's why I hired Robert Klemko. 
because I said, I've never seen a young person as poised and sort of brave in the face of, you know, some, a difficult circumstance. And then obviously, you know, there were so many others and, you know, Emily Kaplan came in and Kaylin and Connor Orr and, and our edit editing staff and, and Mark Moravik and, and Matt Gagne and Gary Gramling was awesome. It, we were so fortunate because as I said, just go do it and you figure out how you use your people and all that. So anyway, it worked out nice. Yeah. And, uh, just to put a cap on that story, Mark Moravik, uh, who was a greater at Sports Illustrated, uh, eventually was Grant Wall's editor when he went on his um, on his own as an independent. Uh, Peter, I cannot thank you enough for this. Uh, you know, make sure you uh, you get a little bit of a mental uh, health break over the next couple of weeks and months before the football season starts. And, uh, and thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, my pleasure, Richard. Have a good day. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Peter King for his time and insights. Uh, pretty remarkable that the NFL continues to remain front and center. Essentially 365 days a year, it often feels like. If you like these kind of conversations, head to the archives. There should be um, some stuff you will appreciate and enjoy if you missed it. Um, last week's podcast included uh, Daniel Jeremiah speaking of the NFL on how he preps for the NFL draft and a whole mess of uh, topics on that. Tim Layden and Dana O'Neill came on to discuss uh, covering the Kentucky Derby and horse racing. I think you'll find that interesting. Ben Strauss of the Washington Post came on, talked about ESPN's layoffs. We had ESPN's Ryan Clark on to uh, talk about covering the Stanley Cup postseason. Analyst Michael Nathanson on the future of sports media rights. Alan Shipnuck on covering the Masters, and golf, again, head to the archives. Uh, there should be stuff that you appreciate and enjoy. As I uh, say pretty much every week, if you leave us a five-star review and a note, that's how this podcast continues, and I appreciate uh, those of you who have reached out over the years and, um, and have supported this podcast. It means a lot. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for his hard work, as he does every week. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 and Odyssey for their support. And thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.